Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of the Adventure Jogger Podcast brought to you by Anthony DeLorenzo, Jenny Early, Sun Chui Choi, Blaine Johnson, all of our Patreon supporters, and of course you, I'm looking at you, the listener. The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. Aaron Hale, welcome to The Adventure Jogger, man. It's great to have you on. What's up, Ryan? Thanks for having me. I wanted, there's so much to cover here, Aaron. We've got a long journey ahead of us. One would say nearly as long as Badwater, 135 miles. So we need to start from the beginning. Aaron, where do you call home? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Akron, Ohio, actually a suburb of Bath, Ohio. That's kind of exactly what you would think of the Midwest. Lots of trees and fewer people and uh just kind of like a norman rockwell painting with you know autumns literally hay rides and apple bobbing and football and it was it was fantastic i loved growing up there and i i had a fantastic childhood yeah. growing up all the way through high school there but uh i also had just enough talent and and, and natural ability to not have to try very hard to get by. Yeah. Yeah. B's and C's. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, when, when I got to college, that, that whole, you know, cushy life was over. <laughs> you learned in college that the high school method of I'm going to turn this in late. And as long as I give the teacher a smile and a wink, they will accept it and not take any right little brown nose, not take any points off. And then when you get to college, you realize, oh, they are going to hold me to deadlines and they are going to make me show up to class and they are going to make me turn things in on time. Oh, come on. No extra credit. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So many I people said, are please. So many people right now are going. That's exactly uh, how I flunked out of college. So, were you an athlete in school, Aaron, at all? Mm. 
athlete would be a strong word. <laughs> it's a, I was a, uh, I was an athletic kid. Yeah. I loved being in sports. I did uh, lacrosse, football, mostly football, a little wrestling, a little lacrosse. Mm-hmm. And most of the time it was just to bust heads off season for football. Yeah. But I wasn't, I wasn't like a technically good athlete. I just really like getting suited up and banging into people. Uh, and that's how I played lacrosse. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was like the fixer <laughs> in lacrosse. I couldn't handle the stick for the darn, but I could juke somebody really good. Uh, but I really loved being out on the field running. I loved, uh, putting my best effort into something and putting it all out there, being a part of a team, all that kind of stuff. I really did love sports. I just didn't, it didn't carry over. Like I didn't really realize uh, as a part of my overall life, like, you know, really put the whole effort in. Working out wasn't really a thing I did in, in high school. And I could have been a whole lot better. Yeah, but you know, I was a I was a kid, I was a teenager, and did other stuff. You know, chase chase girls and play video <laughs> games and stuff. <laughs> Once you discover the joys of women, <laughs> the, the the working out and the practicing hard and the studying hard go straight out the window. Aaron, it sounds like we had nearly the exact same experience going through high school uh, and and into college, but you at some point figure out that maybe college isn't for you and you sign up for the army what what happened with that actually you're right about the college part we did not get along together (laughs) university and me and it was kind of a mutual thing Uh, they invited me to leave (laughs) um it was actually it was academic uh probation I, I got to take off uh, a semester yeah. and gather my thoughts. And I came back, did no better, mm-hmm. and academic suspension, which means five years, no Ohio State universities whatsoever. Like, well, okay, um, that's really embarrassing. If the, <laughs> you know, the probation wasn't embarrassing <laughs> enough, man, people are going to start thinking I'm dumb. Yeah, I'm, but I'm, I'm just lazy. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I needed to get my, my gear, my, my, my collective ass together, right. And, and do something with my life. I need yeah. to work ethic, ambition, a goal uh, to, to strive towards. Mm-hmm. And I needed to earn back that tuition I pissed away kind of literally, <laughs> literally. Right. Um, and, uh, the military was the answer. I decided I was going to do the culinary arts. I was going to become a chef, actually, uh, just because I, I love to cook. I'm, my whole family is very creative. My mom, my brother, very incredible sketch and paint artist. Yeah, you should. Uh, there, there are some amazing chalk art that my my brother's done. It's just masterful. Yeah, and my mom, same. She does. Really cool, cool stuff. But my creative gene, even though I was actually pretty decent with the, you know, uh, like a, you know, a pen and pencil, that kind of thing, sketching. I, uh, I, I love to cook because I really loved food. Yeah, and I love being creative with it, and yeah. I like sharing that creativity with other people. You know, feeding people, and uh, so it all kind of worked out. I love. I started cooking as soon as I could reach over the counter. 
Um, and again, my mom, um, a very, very uh, strong uh, intestinal fortitude to uh, <laughs> be my guinea pig. Right. Um, uh, I joined the Navy as a cook. Gotcha. Okay. And, and I spent eight years, in, half of that time in Italy, part of part of that time in Italy, cooking for the Admiral, uh, the commander of the U.S. Sixth Fleet, which is the the, the top dog, the three star uh, that commands all the naval forces in the Mediterranean and Eastern Atlantic seashore, that kind of thing. Wow. And I was cooking for that. I got to cook for that dude. Um, it was pretty cool. It's funny because he was kind of a, you know, like the Buffett, uh, song pirate born 200 years too late. Yeah. Um, he was a burger and fries guy, which like, come on, I was trying to be a chef here. How do I, <laughs> um, I have all these things I want to make you, sir. And you keep asking for burgers and fries when I can give you all of these things that I've learned to make in Italy. And um i'm in italy right i'm learning this amazing cuisine i'm traveling all over italy and even with the ship we're cruising all around the mediterranean um pulling into all these awesome uh med ports uh off duty i'm going to you know i'm taking the like leave uh and going to Paris and Munich I mean it was it was so cool but definitely not a hardship duty but the 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 admiral had one big standing rule was that when the ship was in port because we were home ported in Gaeta Italy yeah and he said uh when we're in port my cooks are absolutely not allowed to make Italian food what <laughs> well, I mean I I come in at about five in the morning. I make breakfast. I cook a lunch for these guys, and then they it's we're in port. The close of business hours is sixteen hundred four o'clock, and then everybody packs up and heads out to the economy, heads out to Italy, and goes goes to their home, their villa or barracks or whatever. There's no dinner time there, so they get to eat out on the economy for dinner. Why would why would they like the admiral and his top brass want the navy cooks to make them italian breakfast or lunch they can get it right here that's true uh, yeah. so we so i got to got to practice the italian cooking when we pulled out a port mm-hmm. uh, uh one of the, some of the great stuff i got to do was make uh, like the, the italian confections and pastries and stuff oh my god i got fat uh, <laughs> Thank goodness uh, the military does require a certain level of physical fitness. Um, they're kind of lenient with their cooks. Right. Uh, and funny, the, the Navy, uh, we used to call it the three mile a year club because there's two physical fitness tests and you got to run a mile and a half each. <laughs> <clears throat> the three mile a year club because you only are running three miles a year. Little did Aaron Hale know, by the way, when he was in the three mile club at some point, he'd be running 135 miles. And little did he know when he was making all those wonderful Italian uh, cuisine and making the burgers and fries for the Admiral, that someday he'd be doing a heck of a lot more than just three miles in a year. Yeah, so I you know, I joined in 1999, yeah. peace. And then all of a sudden we have two wars. I'm like, what did I do? 
<laughs> right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so, that was that was like a peacetime military, and all of a sudden, boom. Um, you know, I had gotten those internal values, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the work ethic, the uh, goals, you know, and you know, something to strive for, right. pride and accomplishment, all that, and the core values, uh, and. I'd also accidentally picked up some external values, like, you know, that teamwork thing mm-hmm. and being part of something bigger than yourself uh, and, you know, pride in service to my country and, and, and wanting to do well for those sailors to my left and right and all yeah. that. And uh, the original plan of four years and out, you know, like I said, I spent eight years in the Navy. <laughs> and uh, then I, I found myself floating around the Mediterranean watching two wars on TV. Yeah. So, you know, I just, I, I knew that those, the, the, the combination of my natural skills, natural talents and abilities and the training and these new core values of mine could be put to far better use than the delicious, absolutely delectable food that I was making. Uh, but uh, I was still, I was in the Navy. I was a cook. That's what I did. So uh, what I did, I, I volunteered to go to Afghanistan and deploy to the desert as a sailor and work in an, an army chow hall. So I ran an army chow hall in the middle of the desert for hundreds of NATO troops. Uh, coincidentally, there were a couple of platoons of Italian special forces there. So I got to practice the lingo and trade some of those MREs for espresso packets yeah. and stuff. Yeah. That was cool. But um, that's when I met some EOD technicians, explosive ordnance disposal, mm-hmm. the uh, military's bomb squad. And, yeah. Which, I mean, I want to, before we go into that, Aaron, I want to ask you why, you know, because everybody who serves and and I know people whose lives have changed because of the service that were in situations similar to you were kind of wandering through life and couldn't find a path. And the service gave them purpose. The service taught them the things that you were talking about, the motivation, serving one's country, uh, serving those and living for those around you and trying to make their lives better. Better, having a, a bond and this unity and and i don't think anybody aaron ever would have said serving as a cook on a ship to an admiral is not serving your country because it is a vital part of of the united of the military somebody has to make the food right like so that is somebody's job and if nobody does it everyone else can't do their job but obviously aaron for you there was something telling you that that was not enough. You needed to do more than just feed this three-star admiral. And so you do, you volunteer. You could have stayed on that ship for the rest of your service and you could have, you know, just discontinued that. And listen, that's that's a service. You've done your part to your country. You have served your country by doing that. But there was something that made you want to leave that ship and go to the battlefield and work in a forward operating base as a as a cook and step outside of that comfort zone what was it 
that made you want to step outside of the comfort zone of a highly, you know, secure, well-defended ship and go out into the war zone? My chief was a jerk. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> the, the, truth, the truth is that the way I see things, the way, so to speak, uh, is... It, and this is kind of a philosophy, this is the way I live my life, mm -hmm. is that I'm always, I'm not afraid to make quick decisions, take action and adjust on the fly. So I got kicked out of school. I needed to do something. I really love cooking. So I decided to try it as a career. And you know what, it worked. And I, I got stronger because I was moving forward and I was doing something that was definitely bettering my life. But then I, I felt as though it had served its purpose and was no longer my path. I needed to make a decision and try to fulfill, get into closer alignment with what I really want to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt a, a calling, a pull towards something different. And as I, even while I was still on board the ship, I was venturing outside my little, you know, flag galley, yeah. Admiral's, Admiral's Kitchen. And uh, even like, this was 2003, 2004 time frame. I earned my ESWAS, Enlisted Service Warfare Specialist mm -hmm. pin, which uh, at the time wasn't required for anybody. But for the Admiral's cook to earn something that requires me to learn that ship and certain aspects of all ships in the fleet top to bottom from from the radars down to the screws uh, I, I had to learn the west weapon systems and all these other things uh, to become this surface warfare qualified person actually earn a suffix yeah. to my title and and then uh, because on a flagship, there were actually two commands. There's the ship's company uh, with a captain of mm -hmm. the ship. And yeah. then there's the admiral staff, which is like the headquarters on board the ship. And it's like, uh, it's hard to describe, but there, the, the admiral staff, the headquarters of the whole fleet is on this one ship. They kind of stay separate in a sense, from the ship's company. And I mixed in with them. I got my ESWAS, and then I turned back to the flag, uh, the, the, the you know, Sixth Fleet company, yeah. you know, the headquarters there, and I helped others start earning their ESWAS. And it, that was a major source of pride for me that earned me some some external accolades, and it was it was something collateral outside of my duties and that's when i started to catch the bug of doing something beyond cooking yeah and frankly while i love to cook it just wasn't exercising my my brain the way i wanted it to and so i took a step out i volunteered to go somewhere else and my limits were still as a cook but i found a very broad you know, very, something very different from the cushy gig that I had, and that was deploying to Afghanistan in, in an army role. And it was still cooking, 
In fact, I had another Navy cook working with me uh, and nine local national Afghan cooks, Yeah, which, which was hilarious and uh, it was fun. It was a challenge. Yeah. And you know, of course, and it wasn't outside my cooking role, but like I said, I'd, I'd met some EOD technicians. I was, I was learning more about the battlefield by, you know, getting out and experiencing. I went on patrols, that kind of thing. And I was there. I was, I was, the area region we were in was, was really remote. In fact, the Taliban were like, you can keep it. <laughs> we don't want it. Uh, eh, we're not going out there. Um, so I had plenty of time to kind of cross train. I met the, the uh, talked to these EOD technicians, the bomb squad of the military, and they, the, the, the technical aspect of this job is yeah. definitely, it was definitely a challenge. It was definitely uh, alluring. You know, they, they're definitely the, the cool guys uh, on the base. And it's, it's a first responder role. They're lifesavers on the battlefield. And it's a very tight knit brotherhood, like a, you know, a small fraternity within the brotherhood of the military. Everything about it just, it was setting off sirens in my head. This is what I had to do. Yeah. That's really fascinating that you, you know, made a choice to go away from your comfort zone and then to find something that really called you in. And it's really a different type of service member. Um, I am sure that there are lessons that you learned working under a three-star admiral that were completely different than the lessons you learned from the operators and the, and the EODs. It's a, it's two entirely different worlds. You don't get to be a three-star admiral by fucking your way to the top or screwing up. I mean, that is a highly professional job. They're highly talented people, skilled people in leading others. What were some of the lessons that you learned serving under someone who had achieved that level. I mean, there's not a whole lot of people that are, whether it's a three-star general or a three-star admiral, that get to that level. But not only that was, not only was it, you know, the, the vice admiral, but the people that got to eat at his table were all uh, 05 and above. Mm -hmm. Most of which were these full bird captains. Yeah. The same all of these guys, like 25, 35, sometimes more like 85 if we were crossing the 30th parallel. Uh, <laughs> that's a long story. But um, <laughs> tax reasons. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, <laughs> a lot of these these people far outrank the captain of the ship except for the you know positional authority of being the captain of the ship right and, and i was there serving them you know coffee burgers right stuff like that but i was standing right there you know in the corner being some sometimes cooking in the kitchen sometimes i'd be if we had a rotation where i would uh, i would actually be the server and I would stand there in the dining room as they had these conversations and that required me to have a top secret clearance just to be in the room. Right. And just to be in that mess. But it was the way they carried themselves. And also, I, I, it's, it's kind of hard to describe, but I was able to I learn that though these were very exp uh, experienced, very expert men. Right, they're mm -hmm. leading 
this entire fleet of sailors and ships and aircraft and submarines and everything in between. Uh, they're the, the, the fleet chaplain to the fleet Navy SEAL. Uh, everything in between. Uh, I got to learn how to speak to them. And, you know, as a young sailor, junior sailor, sometimes, uh, or junior, you know, enlisted person in any branch, they may, uh, they, they, they may be intimidated by the rank. Yeah. And I just learned how to talk to them, you know, in a respectful but appropriate, in an appropriate manner and get the message across. And what happened was that really helped me when I became an EOD technician. Yeah. Because... Yeah, I would enter the scene and there could be an, a general or an admiral on the scene, but I would take command as soon as there was an explosive hazard nearby that I needed to mitigate. And I could respectfully, uh, you know, with a certain level of decorum and all of that, tell the general to get off my scene. And I needed to get to work. Right. I'll let you, ha I'll, I'll let you have this battle space back when I'm done. Here's what here's what I also need to happen, you know, and um, I was I would always, of course, do it in an appropriate manner. But that's a necessary skill when you're an EOD technician and their lives on the line. You can't can't waste time being intimidated or, you know, pussyfooting around, you know, the words being bashful, that kind of thing. Uh, like I said, it, it's a first responder job and their lives on, on the line, on the battlefield. It's a necessary skill for life, too. I mean, you can't go through life, you know, being frightened to, to speak the truth of the situation. And how crazy is it, Aaron, when you think about this? Like if someone were to lay out a plan for someone's life and to think that the lessons that you learned as a cook in the in the flag galley you know for the for the three-star admiral and had been around all of these captains and commanders and all of that running this fleet that those lessons would translate the lessons you learned as a cook would translate into what you needed to do in your job as an eod an explosive ordnance technician a disposal technician where i mean you wouldn't think the two would ever you know the, the two skill sets would ever have anything in common but you got so much and you became a better EOD because of your time as a cook. Was that was that a hard transition to make just by I mean, by by this, I mean, talking to your commanders and what have you saying, hey, listen, I'm done being a cook. I want to go to EOD school. Was that hard to make that transition? Well, the Navy didn't make it easy uh, my rank in that job that, at that rate um, was undermanned. Mm -hmm. So not only did they not want me to change jobs, they weren't even gonna promote me. So I was gonna stay a petty officer second class for a long time. Yeah, And I put in my request while I was on deployment in Afghanistan to strike over, change you know, NECs, MOSs, whatever you want to call it, change rates to EOD. The other thing was that EOD wasn't actually a job itself at the time. It was like the ESWAS. It was a suffix. It was a qualification. Mm -hmm. And they were only taking special, they were only taking certain source rates like bosun's mate or mastered arms or something more 
I don't know, EOD like than Cook. Right, right. Yeah, we're not taking Cooks into the EOD program. So you're stuck. And when my time in Afghanistan was over, my uh, enlistment, my contract was nearly up. So I returned to the United States. I let my contract expire after eight years in the Navy. And I hung up one uniform. I went over to the Army recruiter and I said, I want to go with EOD. They welcomed me right in. I, said, I gave them my uh, service record, showed them, you know, they, they gave me uh, the same rank and different title. Yeah. I was now a staff sergeant or now a sergeant. Yeah. And then um, another uniform. So the transition <laughs> wasn't, I mean, it could have been, I, I, I loved being in the Navy. I love being a sailor. I still have salt in my veins. And frankly, I didn't go through army basic training, you know, that indoctrination. I went through this better. Uh, it was like a pilot program. It was like a gentleman's version of uh, basic training where it's all the technical stuff and none of the dogma. Stuff. Right. Right. You know, none of the, that indoctrination, hula hula stuff. And so I felt like a, I felt like a sailor in a, all right, you know, a soldier's uniform. Um, even today when they say, where, where did you serve? I say, well, Navy and army and army. I'm an army soldier. <laughs> Yeah, and this, that's kind of how it felt. But it wasn't hard to transition into EOD because for everybody, it was a really hard, technically uh, knowledge-based uh, you know, school. All of the branches send their their perspective, you know, EOD text to the same school. Mm-hmm. All of, all of the branches train together in the same classroom. And they learn the same stuff, the same jargon. They can all speak the same language. You know how uh, the military, every every branch has its own kind of language. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I don't know, what do they, they call the uh, uh, helicopter in, in the Navy is a, is a, a chopper. Right. Uh, the, the army and the Huey or the Marines is, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I think you're allowed to make a Marine joke. If anyone is allowed to make one, I, I, I think it's you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, how are you welcomed into that community knowing that here's this guy who is a former Navy cook, leaves the Navy, now he's in the <clears throat> Army trying to be an EOD, how did the the brotherhood of that very tight-knit group of people accept the Navy cook? You know, it's funny. Well, like I said, all of these branches were, it was a new student among new students. And nobody, like the Marines didn't care that this soldier used to wear a Navy uh, uniform. Yeah. We were all learning to be EOD technicians. And I think above all else, even above branch, I just 
um, I became an EOD technician. Um, and it's funny, as far as accepting me and um, speaking of Marines, uh, Johnny Joey Jones was in my class. Uh, Marine who double uh, above the knee amputee mm-hmm. is now the Fox News con- uh, contributor and author of Unbroken Bonds of Battle. Yeah, and, and I he, he saw fit to include me in one of the chapters, and he talks about this guy who you know this this soldier who when he at lunchtime he's eating this. I, ham and cheese sandwich <laughs> and i pull out a cooler and fire up the, the charcoal barbecue outside the classroom you know the schoolhouse and start cooking you know his pork tenderloins <laughs> he's like he's like who is this guy <laughs> and and he's he's thinking his weird negative you know kind of thoughts and then i turn to him and said man this is way more than i can eat myself you want some of this and then he looks at his ham and cheese sandwich he's like Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can see why people so, loved you. I can see why. There were some other things. Yeah, there's some <laughs> other things I learned uh, as a Navy cook that helped me as an EOD technician. Yeah, for okay. sure. You were you were the favorite person. Like, go sit next to him. He's going to have extras. You don't have to eat that ham and cheese sandwich your wife packed you. You can go ahead and have a, a, a gourmet meal with the cook. That job requires so much technical knowledge you really you have to learn and here's the thing right like the 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 battles we're fighting now there is no like the the people that are making bombs aren't reading manuals you know they're not like they're not buying the bombs from the bomb store there's not an arms manufacturer who's making those a lot of these are improvised explosive devices you have to learn how to think like someone who has no technical knowledge but knows just enough to be dangerous. That has to be just a hard skill to master. You know, our, for decades since World War II, uh, the United States has had EOD technicians mm-hmm. and ordnance is in our name. Our bread and butter was the manufactured munitions. Anything that could be shot, thrown, buried, dropped, everything that goes boom on the battlefield, bullets to weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons were the first responders for those things. Mm -hmm. And then it was Iraq and actually uh, a little bit before then, these IEDs started popping up. Uh, insurgents when we were no longer fighting it was no longer like city you know state for state right and we we're starting to fight these insurgents uh factions you know fanatics and they they learned that they could make homemade explosives and tie them to all sorts of crazy things and you know, booby traps and, and all sorts of stuff. And the, the, the manufacturer, like the design of an IED is limited only by the bomb makers, you know, uh, creativity and right. imagination. 
So that's what we were facing, especially in Iraq. And they were using all sorts of things, you know, key fobs, garage door openers, doorbell alarms, cellular phones, passive infrared, the same thing that opens the sliding glass door of the grocery store for you as you walk up. That's what we were facing in Iraq. Afghanistan, thank goodness those guys were not very creative. All we were seeing there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the same thing. Um, you know, an oil, you know, vegetable oil jug full of that, um, um, you know, uh, fertilizer. Yeah. And uh, a nine volt battery connected to, uh, you know, just a, a pressure plate made out of plywood and all connected by lamp core. Very simple, very low tech very effective because there's almost nothing in what i just described that you can find with a metal detector except that nine volt battery so go out to the desert hunting for a nine volt battery wow (laughs) if that doesn't really paint the picture of how difficult an eod's job is in afghanistan I don't know what does. Go search in the desert for a nine volt battery. That's the I, only thing that you can find that'll help you know something's there. Oh, they and they they started. You know what they started doing was offsetting the nine volt battery. So what they would do is just a little extra lamp cord, and they'd run the nine volt battery around the side of a wall. Aha. Uh-huh. The rest of it was buried right in the middle of this dirt trail. Thank goodness. After about twenty four hours of sitting there, the 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 hole would start to get concave as the dirt settled. So yeah. thank goodness there was at least a telltale sign if we let it sit long enough. But uh, uh, one guy, uh, one guy told me before, uh, it was bef- before I left on deployment, I forget where I heard it, but um, said every step out there is a deliberate act. Yeah. That puts it in the perspective. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what we dealt with. And, of course, eight months into the my 12 months there, one step ended up being that one. Oh, because, man, I know as an EOD, when you're stateside, the most excitement you have is someone is cleaning out grandpa's attic and they find a grenade in there. And so you guys have to go to grandpa's attic and remove the grenade that he kept from the Second World War or, or oh Vietnam. I'm, I'm, yeah, we do, we could call it stateside response. Right. Uh, we, we definitely have a stateside job, uh, including Secret Service support. So anywhere a protectee goes, we gotta go with them. We clear the hotels and wherever they're gonna be speaking or whatever. Um, I went with Obama um, to Jakarta in 2010. Um, I went to church uh, and cleared the church in Alabama for, or was it Georgia? I forgot. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, for President Carter, um, and yeah, stateside response. I saw some crazy stuff from old like Civil War cannonballs uh, <laughs> to somebody had actually taken it was some kind of crazy huge Navy deck gun shell and made 
a fireplace. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can't make that shit up. Um, he built it into his fireplace and it still had powder. How it didn't detonate over decades is way beyond me. Wow. Uh, sometimes sometimes <laughs> it's just like that. Uh, was it the dynamite that farmers have from busting stumps? sitting in the back of the barn for years and it starts to exude uh it starts to leak that night uh, uh nitrogen yeah uh, yeah and it just crystallizes and that stuff's so sensitive uh so yeah all sorts of fun stuff overseas and at home yeah and i'm sure the the home is a whole different thing but then like you said you were serving overseas um i wanted i want to talk about your your first your first call your first call overseas deployed you have to clear your first explosive ordinance what was that like that was <laughs> You know, every unit, uh, when they go, they do the left seat, right seat thing. Mm -hmm. um, the outgoing unit does exactly that, like spend about two weeks together for the first week. The outgoing EOD team, you know, the, like the incoming EOD team just follows the outgoing EOD team around to learn their AO. Yeah. Uh, and then the second week, the outgoing EOD team, or at least that team leader, follows around the incoming team and just watches them in action. Well, as it turns out, it was like the very first mission, as I'm still doing the right seat. Uh, yeah. It just so happened that, you know, that team leader was, <laughs> was busy um, keeping the insurgents' head down with, you know, fire yeah and there was an ied just sitting right there like do you want me to do this and he's like of course i'm a little busy yeah you're a you're you're a team leader get to get to work yeah uh, so um and frankly all it was that we knew of was uh, about six inches of exposed debt cord it's this like, bright neon orange uh line in the dirt right in the entrance of one of those great big mud uh, grape huts yeah and of course that doesn't that doesn't fit the the, the, the scenario the the scene at all and since we were taking you know some some fire so, uh just so we're, i'm just gonna blow this thing so we dropped a, a charge on it and set it off the way it was in basically the way it was intended to go yeah, uh, we do did what's called a blow in place or a bip, just because it wasn't it wasn't a good idea to try to disarm this thing. We just made sure that everybody was safe and we took care of it. But that was my first experience with something that wasn't a training egg. Yeah, and I, and the thing is too, it's not like you watch the movie The Hurt Locker where it's like okay hey it's over there just go over there there's nothing there's all there is is a bomb over there just go defuse that you're taking you're taking enemy fire there's a battle going on and you have to decide how to get rid of something that's that could explode if you take a wrong turn i wouldn't i'm not even i don't refer to that thing by its name it's the ouch closet um the, the pain cabinet yeah um 
but the it's if i'm gonna die i'm gonna die comfortable uh that guy i remember i saw that and actually that came out while i was in eod school and i already knew better than that dude and he started picking up he started pulling crap with his hands right out of the dirt and there's like six one five five rounds one i go you can't do that with one hand two uh <laughs> nobody nobody is gonna do that not even the dumbest infantry private but definitely not an eod guy is not just gonna start ginking things he doesn't know is under the ground out of the ground by it's, his hand yes you're the wrong person to watch that movie with because you can just sit there the whole time and go wrong 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 I wrong was, wrong wrong i was in new york <laughs> once uh this is years later i was in new york once and i was at that at the fbi uh headquarters in manhattan and i don't know how the, the conversation came up and i was talking about that movie yeah and he's like that was the dumbest thing it makes eod text look so stupid and he goes i'm fbi welcome to my world you ever seen a movie with an fbi agent <laughs> there was there was a movie Touché. yeah there was a very popular special operations movie that came out years ago and i remember a friend of mine going that movie which was based on a true story he goes none of that happened and i'm like how do you know he goes because i was there and none of that happened i could tell you not at all so the movies are true story right they're made for people like me who who don't know any better they're not made for you aaron but um so you have that that's your first experience and i'm sure as you go on the nerves cool and all of a sudden you get comfortable in your job of trying to diffuse these situations um walk us through the last ordinance that that you experienced that led you to where you are today you're right uh like it's it's hard to put it simply mm-hmm. the, like i didn't get comfortable you don't get comfortable yeah i guess that's a really bad term yeah, i know what yeah. you're talking yeah. about but uh the, the you know there's there's a motto in eod this is initial success or total failure mm-hmm. and that's right over like the gate when you come in to the the, the practice is it's painted in like two foot letters in the cafeteria um so you can't get away from it, uh, and it really puts a pretty uh, fine point on on the job. You know that whole um, you know, sweat while you tr- train so you don't bleed in battle. Right. You know, well, for us, it's like sweat w- while you train so you don't die. Right. Um, and on the battlefield, we were really busy. Uh, that area, Sia Choi's little little village in the Zaray district of the kandahar province it's west of kandahar city Mm -hmm. and it's kind of the birthplace of the taliban it was like the last stronghold i think somebody said the russians way back when called it the heart of darkness or something like that and to see a choy i asked a turk what see a choy meant what translates to he said i think it means cemetery like great we're in tombstone and this is the wild west yeah yeah and that's kind of what it felt like it was the desert um and it was uh it was just every day there was an explosion or an id or you know the the um 
engineers around clearance package would lose lose a vehicle or you know to a you know, explosion and i'd go out do a post blast somebody would lose other than equipment right to a blast and i would go do a post blast analysis on my way to the post blast analysis i would do more of those pressure plate ieds just getting to it we'd go on dismounted patrols we do uh air inserts into areas and i'd clear you know a village with my team and we would do five or more ieds just to secure an, an abandoned village yeah and i mean that's we were did this constant and uh, we supported a total of it was like three different it was it was an entire company size uh it was four four cav scouts out of riley and th- these guys were they knew their stuff uh and but we were we were all over the place with these guys and um it was busy so eight months and change uh into the deployment i got to go back to uh dc visit family mm-hmm. see my firstborn who's now 12 i got to see him turn one yeah uh my uh whole family got together for thanksgiving my my dad kids grandpa dressed up like mickey mouse <laughs> uh which is a once in t- lifetime thing yeah. to see yeah. so it was a really awesome last page in the photo album yeah Right. And uh, I you know, did my two weeks of R&R, came back to the battlefield. My team grabbed me in our truck and we jumped into a supply convoy and headed out towards back towards CHOI. On the way, right on Route 1, the only basically the only paved road in Afghanistan. Uh, the ANP, the Afghan National Police, said they found something on the side of the road. Um, yeah i wasn't it wasn't really us on duty we're just in a supply convoy right no not on mission but we're the closest and there's no no sense in making the the, you know the quick response force uh um, come out to do it when we're right there so i tossed tossed the luggage off the robot the robot out of the truck and it got to work Mm -hmm. pressure plate the robot took care of that but then it couldn't get the jug out of the hard packed dirt and i wanted to get as much evidence as i could because i wanted to get these guys and where our evidence goes after we package it up is to uh you know the counter explosives exploitation cell sexy yeah very sexy uh, <laughs> that's what it's called c-e-x-c sexy <laughs> They they had great t-shirts. Yeah, they um, do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and and that was one of the things I learned when I deployed to Iraq. As I worked with the sexy cell and um, learned how to triage all of that stuff, where all that evidence goes to the FBI, DIA, CIA, DEF, ATF. You know, I mean, DEF. Anyways, yeah. you know all that stuff. Right. And. Um, uh, I wanted to get to the bomb placer, you know, the bomb maker, the bomb financer, all those guys before they got to us. Right. So I wanted that evidence. I jumped out of the truck and brought my metal detector along with me and I had an evidence kit. The, the IED was separated. 
it was more or less, I mean, it was rendered safe, yeah. as we call it. So no sense in getting into the bomb suit for something that wasn't going to go off. And I made my way towards it about 20 yards or so from the that ID, there was a secondary device, still buried, still undetected. And just as my metal detector was trying to tell me something really important, I get that mule kick from hell. The lights went out. I got my bell rung like I've never gotten rung before. And I landed, I got punted in the air, landed on my knees and elbows. I was still conscious. I don't know how lucid I was anymore, but I was so conscious. And first thing I thought was, well, that's what it feels like. Uh, But then I thought, okay, what comes next? That ambush type thing? Uh, Or is my security card on all now looking at me instead of out? Right. uh, Where the guns are pointed. Uh, My team is there. The first thing my team, other EOD techs are supposed to do is clear a safe path and to get me, you know, get the medics in there and me out because there could be other hazards. And I'm thinking all this, and uh, I also think that I don't want my team or the medics to come into a potentially hazardous uh, area. So I thought it'd be a good idea to just stand up and start walking back to the truck. Of course, you know, I couldn't see. I thought my helmet had gotten pushed over my face. Yeah. And so before I did fix that, I did a functions check. We got the fingers, toes, um, yeah. knees, elbows, everything seemed to be right where I left it. So I reached up to grab my helmet and realized that it found that it was gone. And that's when I thought, oh, crap, this is bad. Wow. So you. My, my first sergeant is going to kill me for losing that. Oh, that's a first sergeant joke. Um, but holy cow, Aaron, you. You step on a device, you are hurled into the air, you are conscious. During this explosion, you, you're, you're, all of a sudden you're thinking, okay, I got my helmet, blah, blah, and and here you are. Are, Is your, are your ears ringing at this point? Do you hear anything at this point? You're just, and you stand up and you try to walk away after being in an explosion. Well, literally, like I can I can remember it like it just happened, but you know how they say ring it rung my bell. Yeah, it felt like a gong had gone off in my head, and people ask me, "What's the first thing that went through your mind?" Yeah, when when that blast happened, I said, "Overpressure, blast wave." Uh, yeah. The first thing that went through my mind was a blast wave. Right. Um, but truth was, I, I actually, I think I might have almost chortled a little bit. I'm like, oh, that was close. Like, I'm, that's what it feels like. Uh, but it, in the military training really just took over. Yeah. I, I knew from my time there, my time in Iraq, uh, all the training I've done. The, the what could happen immediately after an explosion right? there there's going to be an attack so i just started thinking about situational awareness and i'll worry about my situation uh when i'm done worrying about you know my team or yeah. the medics or the, you know, the security and you know the situation 
don't worry about me later. And I just, so I, I, I realized that, you know, my helmet was gone. My eye protection had been blown right off my head too. My, something was wrong with my eyes, but I needed to get back to my team and we needed to work this, we needed to assess the situation. So I got up, I started doing what probably looked like a zombie walk uh, through Afghanistan. Yeah. I didn't, I tried to get back to the, the truck, but of course I had no idea where it was anymore. Right. Uh, so I'm just, just wandering around, probably putting my team in more danger. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, one of my, one of my guys grabbed me, dragged me back to the truck. The medics came from the outer cordon, huffing and puffing, complaining about how I made him run 300 meters. And I'm like, sorry to inconvenience your day, dude. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's, you know, military joking. Yeah. At the same time, you know, my team members are leaning right over top of me. I'm laying on the ground and like trying to, just gen- gingerly touched my face. I'm like, how's my face? And I think one of the guys, you know, I think mean, really was loopy this time, but I'm pretty sure one of them said, well, you're not going to be a, you know, a face model or something like that. Yeah. You know, like, oh, okay. No, but I mean, again, we weren't far from Kandahar Airfield. So within about 14 minutes, the medevac chopper was there picking me up. And, but it was almost like, uh, as soon as I got in the chopper and the, the wheels uh, were up, uh, it was off the skis or whatever. Um, that's when I, it was almost like there was like a switch. It yeah. went off and I realized that I could relax. Yeah. And that's what, or they gave me something to relax myself on the, uh, on the medevac, but I passed right out. I woke up in Kandahar, I don't know how much longer, but my uh, Sergeant Major, Command Sergeant Major mm-hmm. uh, was there. And all I said was, uh, Staff Sergeant Hale, yes, Sergeant Major, let me get this straight. You get blown up, then you walk out of the, you know, you walked off the battlefield? Yes, Sergeant Major. You are bleeping crazy. <laughs> yes, Sergeant Major. And then I pass back out. Next thing I know, I'm in Landstool. Like, that was surreal. But then in Landstool, I had to wait 24 hours to go you know, for the swelling in my head to go down before they let me do that transatlantic flight. Mm-hmm. And as they're about to wheel me out of um, the hospital and onto the tarmac, one of the nurses goes, you want to meet Tom Cruise? I'm like, come on. What is this? And did I get hit that hard? Yeah, like, <laughs> am, I, am I dreaming? What, like, no, are you, are you joking? Do you want to meet Tom Cruise? What I, are you talking about? Is this some kind of weird code? Am I dreaming? What is what is happening? Yeah. Hallucination. You know, apparently he was in you know Europe uh, promoting his latest Mission Impossible movie. Yeah. And he was actually there thanking the troops. So I'm in a gurney, and it could have been then both my eardrums were blown out at that time. I could still hear, but it was weird. Yeah. I was laying on a gurney being wheeled out, right? I don't know how high that is. Yeah. But it really sounded like he was face to face with me. I'm like, you can't be that short. (laughs) (laughs) He is notoriously short. I think you just proved it, Aaron. He's like, thanks for your service. I'm like, this is really weird. Are you like a gnome? <laughs> yeah. 
Anyways, <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for Mission Impossible one through eight. <laughs> yeah, and then I get I get to get you know shake his hand. I get that jolt of uh, uh, Christian science. Yeah, Christ, Scientology. Christian yeah, science. yeah, some Scientology. And I'm like, Ooh, um, nice. Thanks, bud. Aaron. Anyways, you, I could go on forever. Yeah. So you have you, you have not your vision's completely gone because your your eyes are gone at this point, right? I mean, your face got pretty messed up above, pretty much above. It looks like. You know the 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 lips below are okay, but you got it took a lot of damage in your eye sockets and above the nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the blast kind of came from my right side, mm-hmm. and the the blast it actually blew my right eyeball right out, and then it fused the eyelids together. So I was doing this like permanent winking and gun thing. Yeah. Um, and then. My eye, oh, my left eye was still there, but it, it had like a piece of frag cut right across the bridge of my nose and then gashed the eyeball just enough that they couldn't repair it. Okay. So, um, you yeah, so both my eyes gone, more or less. Uh, it blown out both my eardrums, but I still had my hearing at that time. And it, it cracked my skull to the point where I was leaking spinal fluid right out of my nose, right through the sinuses. Yeah. So I had to get what was called an encephalocele. So, you know, they take a piece of cartilage from your septum and patch it up and just, you know, clog that leak. It's amazing uh, what the human body can do and how they can repair stuff like that. So as of that moment... You have no vision, but you can still hear, but your eardrums are blown out. Eventually, you would start losing your hearing as the body would heal, right? Well, it was uh, a little more, uh, <laughs> a little more of an emergency than that. Yeah, it wasn't a gradual thing. Uh, my hearing did improve. My right side, like I said, took more damage, so I I definitely lost more hearing, which was funny. Uh, after I left Walter Reed, um, I went to the Augusta VA Hospital, where they've got one of the uh, the country's uh, blind rehabilitation centers, and I for six months I learned how to be blind. So I was inpatient at a VA hospital, learning how to use the cane, the accessibility yeah. tools, uh, all the talking, phone, computer, barcode scanner for my pantry, that kind of thing. And frankly, like living skills, like learning how to pair my socks. Right. Uh, and when when to know how much toothpaste is enough on the toothbrush. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. Things I didn't even think of, I'm like, oh, yeah yeah i'm gonna need to know that right but um the um even though uh my right ear the funny thing was my right ear i heard you know left ear i heard better than my right and i would turn my head so that my i I could listen better with my left ear and it was like a rudder when i was walking with a cane yeah and i ended up like veering off to the right everywhere yeah. i went yeah um but as soon as i could use my, my my phone and get on the internet and really like figure out how to use the accessibility features voiceover text-to-speech stuff i started researching blind plus anything outside run climb yeah skip i don't know uh just because i was terrified of being stuck inside for the rest of my life stuck on the couch popping pills 
uh, maybe diving into a bottle or something, but being confined by my disability. So I wanted to figure out this blindness thing, not just the cane, but how do I stay fit? I mean, at Walter Reed, you know, the Bethesda Naval mm-hmm. Medical Center, they fed me like I was in buds. I, it was there was so much food. I gained a ton of weight. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I like food, but uh, I'll sit in a hospital bed. Uh, I I was getting chunky, so um, I wanted to figure out this fitness thing. It was so funny too because. Um, this recreational therapist, which I didn't really know was a thing, uh, came in and goes, hey, you want to go golfing? I'm like, don't mess with me. This is like Tom Cruise all over again. But it's, <laughs> it's real. Blind golfing is just as serious a sport as sighted golfing. Um, and then you know, the guy comes in another day and goes, hey, you want to go for a bike ride? I'm like, okay, I'm drawing the line. Bike ride? Yeah. 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 Tandem cycling is a serious sport. I mean, yeah. it's in the Paralympics. And I mean, yeah, it's so every Saturday I would go to the local bike shop and the bike you know, the shop owner had a tandem and I would jump on with him and we'd go for like 35 miles. On Climb Mount Everest. Uh, I saw him out. I went climbing in Peru with him. 19,000 foot peak. Uh, Lonnie Bedwell is the first blind person, another Navy veteran, to, uh, he's the first blind person to kayak the entire Grand Canyon. Wow. So you go from, we cut out a little bit there. So we go from you finding this guy who owns a bike shop, hopping on his tandem bike, and, and you guys are going on bike rides every weekend, 35-some miles. You find somebody who's a blind climber, and you climb Everest with this guy. Like, it, it, it's amazing that, well, that... I don't climb Everest with him. Okay. You, he, he climbed Everest. Gotcha. I climbed Mount Mariposa, okay. which, if you know Spanish, uh, means butterfly. Mm-hmm. And that's... It's like naming a mountain, Mount Tickle Feather. I mean, <laughs> but it was a big mountain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It was, he was actually, he, he started this thing on the 10th anniversary of Mount Everest. He actually took a whole all wounded veteran team up Mount Mariposa in the Peruvian Andes. He called it Soldiers to Summits. Yeah. And now I was on that team. It was funny. We started out at like four in the morning before the sun was up to to beat, you know, to get to the peak before the sun started melting, you know, the glacier and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I remember, the whole all the people in the team were like, "Man, I can't see where I'm putting my feet." I'm like, "Welcome to my world." But <laughs> right. Who complaining? Let's go. Right. Holy and, cow! And Lonnie, Lonnie Bedwell, the kayaker, um, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, go blind in service he was turkey hunting mm-hmm. with a buddy and he his buddy dick cheney him he says um but uh this this guy kayaked uh, the grand canyon and i kayaked part of the sections of yellowstone with him and yeah i was just finding i wasn't blazing any new trail right i was just i was trying to figure out how to do it and i was in fact along the way yeah, but just making, like I said, making decisions, taking action. I was trying to figure it out, and uh, I wanted to learn 
not just this was something i decided when i was at walter reed and it was that you know the the, the whinies and what ifs those demons mm-hmm. i call yeah. them so yeah. i was trying to creep in and you know like what if i'd done something differently why did i why 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 did it happen to me you know mm-hmm. why is this happening to me and all the wrong questions right there's there are no answers to any of them right there's nothing you can do to change the situation the only thing i can do is change how i you know i react is the only thing i can control is how i look at my future not mm-hmm. my past right so i decided if i was going to be blind for the rest of my life i was going to be the best damn blind guy i could be and i wanted to figure out how to do that i owed it to my my family i owed it to my fellow brothers and sisters especially those other uh, service members in that hospital with me they're fighting their own battle i have no monopoly on pain i can't say i quit right but, uh, i mean I am an EOD team leader. I'm a staff sergeant. I'm a soldier. I wear these hats. I have these responsibilities. And I can't just say, you know what? I'm calling a sick day for the rest of my life because I have a really good excuse. No, I can't do it. I had to get back to work, even if I couldn't see anymore. So I started climbing mountains. I started, uh, you know, you know, kayaking, and because I'd moved to Florida to be close to EOD school, and I started, you know, instructing at the school schoolhouse, um, and I started, you know, was speaking across the country, uh, just telling my story of how I, you know, I got hurt, and I'm still doing things, and still have a great outlook on life, and, and you know, things were going going pretty well. And then, like you said, uh, I started losing my hearing, but it wasn't gradual. Uh, about four years later, yeah, 2015, I uh, contracted bacterial meningitis. It was, as we suspect, it was right through that crack in my skull. Apparently, the encephalocele, that little piece of septum, wasn't fully uh, clogging the leak. Yeah, and. Uh, one a path out is also a pathway in and the meningitis that bacteria crept into my brain and it was very quickly trying to kill me i was back in the hospital and by the time i came to um i was i was i wasn't even lucid for like four days they said i was like confused yeah and scared and angry i was breaking out of my restraints my mom was like those poor little nurses there was like eight of them trying to hold you down yeah <laughs> i was so embarrassed uh, but um i came to and it sounded like i was underwater uh, i i couldn't hear it was just very fuzzy very distant um like i feel very congested i don't know what's going on and the doctor broke the news to me and i'm like you're telling me doc that i'm gonna be a hundred percent blind and hundred percent deaf you mean i'm never gonna have to pretend to pay attention ever again <laughs> well, there's a silver lining to everything uh, of course i blame the meningitis and the deafness but i didn't hear my mom or my girlfriend at the time uh um i didn't hear either of them laugh i thought it was funny <laughs> 
<laughs> a sense of humor can go so far, can it, Aaron? And when you're it dealing with these things, is, yeah, it's definitely a release valve. It's a it's a way to diffuse uh, the stress. I use I use humor a lot, especially in those times when I need to laugh. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, a lot of times. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. And I can imagine, Aaron, as you're finding out from that doctor, like, hey, you're already 100% blind. You are going to lose your hearing. You are losing, Aaron, both ways of connecting with the outside world. Ah, we got kids. We got some kids in the podcast. Time out. (laughs) Hey, buddy. Can you say hi? Hello. How are you? Okay. Hi. Do we dinner? No. Okay, that is on the phone call. Can can you let me have a little privacy? You want to go back out with mommy? Uh, uh but mom is coming in. All right. She, she's on the window over there. Oh, okay. I love you, buddy. Can you go close the door and go back to mommy? Oh, there's another one. Thank you, Dozer. Hello. Hi. No, no worries. You're good. Dad's on the phone. You're good. All right. Hey, I'm a dad of three. I know that fatherhood never takes a break, so I, I completely understand. No worries. Those boys are, are awesome. They're like, I call them my, my pygmy Vikings. <laughs> that's, a, that's, yeah, that's, that's a four-year-old, and mm-hmm. he's... He's like the 96th percentile size yeah. for his age. Yeah. And he, those guys, those guys can break anything. <laughs> Isn't being a dad awesome, Aaron? Isn't it the best thing you've ever done? It is the coolest thing. And one of them, this was when they were, I think, still two or something. It was a while back. And one of them came to me with one of those child safety locks from the cabinet. It was busted. <laughs> he goes, I found this. What are you talking about founding? That's not that's not supposed to happen. The it's other just... one comes the other one comes to me with the cabinet handle. Like here. <laughs> what? <laughs> God, love them boys. Love them boys. Aaron, uh, before before you had to, to go to dad duty for a second there, and again, you're not the first person to have to interrupt for parental duties on this podcast, and you will not be the last, and I have no problem with that whatsoever. Um, what was it like to be faced with the reality that you're already 100% blind, you're going to be 100% deaf, you are going to lose both ways that we communicate and relate and interact with the world around us. What were you thinking at that point? Oh, it was all puppy dogs and rainbows. Um, no, no, of course not. Uh, sorry, it's okay. it was uh, it was horrible. I mean, my my hearing left me in. I mean, it was it was pretty much gone when I woke up. Mm-hmm. But over the course of the next two, uh, over the course of like the next two weeks, it went from, say, 10% to zero. Yeah. So I was just grasping at the last vestiges of my already, you know, diminished hearing until one day I bit on a tortilla chip. And I couldn't hear the crunch inside my jaw. You know, that bone conduction. Yeah, yeah. That is the strangest feeling. You know, you can't, like, you can plug your ears all you want and you can't get away from crunching in your mouth. 
and that was gone. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. But I was I was right back. I was sitting. Also, I also lost my uh, vestibular balance, that inner ear gyro. Mm-hmm. So I came home in a wheelchair. I'd already run. Um, I'd, I'd run, I don't know, four or five marathons. I qualified for Boston. I ran Boston in 2015. Um, I was two weeks away from going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro yeah. and I contract, contracted meningitis. So now I'm in a wheelchair, I'm blind, I'm deaf, and I'm sitting at my breakfast bar. I can't even get on my uh, treadmill. The heck? If it weren't in the hospital, if it weren't for those um, handicap bars in the to- in the bathroom, I would have fallen off the toilet. And I'm like, of course, I was not a very uh, pleasant guy to be around. Yeah, <laughs> you know? but I was sitting there, and and like I, I said, those 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 demons, right? Mm-hmm. The and it's the same doubt and the same fear that we face when we're you know at it, like running an ultra yeah right yeah it's too hard you can't do this you're not equipped you don't have it why is this happening to you right you know you're this this is too much yeah and i was thinking you know haven't i had my fair share right when have i paid my dues when has this soldier sacrificed enough and all of that, you know, I mean, and again, whatever the hardship, this is, this is why I run. And I know that's a, why a lot do is to get to that point beyond the physical yeah, to where you can actually face down those demons. You can face down your own, you know, voices of doubt and yeah. fear, yeah. anger, you know, and you can you can overcome and that's why they say in a marathon the first you know after the first 20 miles you're halfway there right right same same with an ultra marathon you hit that wall and you you you, your head gets you over the wall to the next wall Mm -hmm. and to the next (laughs) one yeah i was sitting there at my breakfast bar and i had to i'd done this before and it was it was like i was thinking it right um You've, you've been here before and you were talking you were, you were actually getting paid to speak to talk about this very thing and now the fates god whatever destiny whatever you want to call it was saying okay put your money where your mouth is go do it again okay i have to i have i mean the same same answers as before mm-hmm. uh I, I i i have my responsibilities i have my duty i have a mission and I started, I just got to work and it was, it was worse than the first time because all of those tools, all those new methods, uh, the accessibility devices, everything was silenced, right? Um, it was, it was very isolating. I was uh, very lonely. It's very frustrating. And, um, you know, my girlfriend, now my wife yeah uh, she she began writing every letter of every single word she needed to say to me in the palm of my hand that was the only way i could get input and communication yeah of course of course at this time i was thinking i should learn braille (laughs) blind school 
technology, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm like the laziest active blind guy, but I got on the treadmill. I hit the quick start button, you know, half a mile an hour. And I started walking. We'll hold on with an iron grip. Yeah. And I would just walk. <clears throat> then I would hit that speed up button. One, two beeps. And of course, I'm right. imagining the beep. Right. But the thing would go a little faster. And I would walk. I took those trekking poles that I once used in the mountains. And I would do this like daddy long leg thing out to my mailbox and back. And I'd be exhausted. And then I'd do it again. And then I would, I would go a little bit down the road, maybe to you know, the neighborhood gate and back. And that's how I started. And, and a, a year later, September 2016, I ran my first marathon, my comeback marathon. It was my hometown of Akron. And it was the same week of my 20th high school reunion. Yeah. And how far you'd gone in those 20 years. That guy that the university of all the Ohio State universities said, Aaron, we don't want you. We don't want your money. You know, like, 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 listen, you can't even pay us to go to school here. And now you are this person who has accomplished all of these things. And, and you developed through that, through you know, serving on that Navy ship as a cook through being an EOD technician through te learning everything again, when you lost your sight, you had learned all these things that made you an unstoppable force. If anybody has an excuse to just sit at home and complain and whine and just wither away, it's you, you've had a lot taken from you. You've had everything taken from you, but I, what blows me away, Aaron is that you sat for like what sounds like maybe an hour to be like a, you had like an hour long pity party and then the switch was i've got to figure out a way to do this you can't hear anything you can't see anything but you you feel your way to that treadmill and you start knocking out some miles and then a year later you figure out a way to run a marathon when you can't see and you can't hear like that Aaron, when, when did the switch happen in your brain? How, wh when did you go from the kid that the school was telling you, don't come back, you can't give us enough money to, to be a student, to someone who doesn't even uh, sees these obstacles and just bolt blows right through these barriers? Well, you know, you had it almost right. It didn't take everything from me. Um, they had, I had my family, mm -hmm. I had a really strong support system Yeah, and I had my military family and a really strong support system there. And I had all of those core values, the skills, education I'd gotten through the military. I was a completely different person mm -hmm. and I'm still we're always growing, we're always changing, we're always learning. And that was one of the things that I did learn in the military was a life a lifestyle of learning, yeah. of a growth mindset. Yeah. And, you know, sitting there, you know, feeling sorry for myself, blind and deaf and sitting in my breakfast bar, 
just holding on to the counter so I wouldn't fall off the stool. And I did just what anybody in my situation would do. And I started a chocolate company. (laughs) 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 That gets gets everybody. (laughs) Man, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm, in how many people in your situation, if you didn't have a sense of humor, could you really survive everything you've gone through if you didn't have a sense of humor about it? Mm. Yeah. You know? Um, it's, it's definitely helped me because uh, uh, if I couldn't, couldn't laugh, I would have gone crazy a long time ago. Yeah. Which uh, people are going to wonder, Aaron, that you, you are blind and you are deaf, how you're hearing me. You were able to regain a portion of your hearing through an implant, correct? Yeah, yeah, I've got a cochlear implant. It's not a hearing aid. It doesn't amplify the sound into my ear canal because my ears are turned off. They're yeah. dead. Uh, what it does is it takes sound from microphones like a hearing aid and turns it into a digital sound. And I've got this magnetized tether that links to the implant in under the skin in my head. And that goes to an electrode that's attached right to my auditory nerve in my cochlear bone, the inner ear. And it sends that digital signal right to my brain. So I had to learn an entirely different way of hearing. And um, um, uh, they call it, there's something called the uh, Stockdale Paradox. Yeah. Have you heard of it? No, I've not. Um, Dr. Viktor Frankl talks about it in Man's Search for Meaning, mm-hmm. but uh, Admiral, Vice Admiral, three-star, um, was a, a Vietnam POW. And uh, both he and Frankl had noticed something um, among his, the fellow prisoners. Yeah. And Satya was asked, how do you know, like, how did you hold on for so long when others didn't? And he would say, oh, I knew exactly within, say, three days when somebody was going to was going to die. Mm-hmm. I, I knew when they had just let go and they were going, they were going to, they had given up. And it was the optimistic, the optimists. And there's the paradox, uh, you know, yeah. it's blind, so to speak, uh, optimism. Um, they would say something like the, the Americans are going to come by Christmas Day and rescue us and Christmas will come and go. And then, you OK, they just move the date back. OK, they're going to come by Easter and we'll be rescued by Easter and then Easter will come and go. And then, you know, they eventually they couldn't move the field goal any further back and they would just give up. That was just dumb optimism. How he and others uh, held on for so long was keeping faith in a good outcome, you know, in if keeping faith in the end, despite, you know, having that awareness of the reality you're in. And what I did, I almost 
I also come to that optimism when I had the surgery for the uh, implant because I thought uh, that they would give me the implant, turn it on, and then I would hear again. Right. <laughs> oh, nobody. Um, first, I had to wait for the infection to clear up, the bacteria to be gone. Mm-hmm. And then I had to get one surgery, the implant in my right ear, the more damaged one. Uh, and you'd see I'm not wearing that one. Yeah. Um, first, I get the surgery on that one. I have to wait for the surgical site to heal. Then I go get the thing tuned in, like the, the process or the external thing turned on, and I would hear. But they turned that thing on, and it was just a little, little scratchiness, like being j- like just outside the, the old AM, FM radio signal distance, yeah. where you just get the little <laughs> a static. Yeah. That's kind of what it sounded like. And they cranked that thing up all the way the power output and it just had too much scar tissue yeah. in like you know in inside and it wasn't working and i thought i'm supposed to be hearing again you told me i would hear and it crushed me and then uh i you know came back to reality and and again you know i got the surgery on the other one i started tuning it in eventually i could it was it was uh, it was around Thanksgiving time. Yeah, and I was still pretty much deaf. But I just decided I wasn't even going to worry about the hearing. I was just going to turn around and I was going to we were going to hold a feast, this huge, huge feast. Yeah, you know, invite everybody, and I was going to cook everything. I was going to make the biggest Thanksgiving festivus. Uh, a couple birds, ham, you know, like I was going to put bacon in everything. Uh, I was going to turn all the vegetables in something completely unhealthy. You know, yeah. I, I started cooking cakes and pies and cookies weeks in advance. And I started making batch after batch of fudge just because it was fun. And Michaela, yeah, God bless her. She was running to the grocery store like every day but uh she she said she noticed two things one was a smile on my face mm-hmm. she hadn't seen that in like six months and two the fudge was starting to pile up <laughs> <laughs> so she started sneaking it out you don't have to be real stealthy around the blind deaf guy but uh i say sneaking <laughs> Um, and just give it away. And people started asking if they could, you know, buy more of it, you know, for like a birthday party or something. I'm like, well, of course you may. I'm a capitalist. But uh, while I was cooking, I I was making the fudge in this pot, and um, I at one point I turned and I hit the pot with a wooden spoon, and it sounded like a wooden spoon hitting in you know a steel pot wow it sounded it sounded like that yeah and I, ooh, and I got another spoon out and i started banging banging and banging i got another pot out and i was like a toddler you know yeah on the kitchen floor and I, was, I was like playing the pot and drums and i'm like hey michaela hey honey this sounds I don't know what she said because I can't hear it, but I'm sure it was like, yeah, I know what it sounds like. I can hear better than you. Right. Um, 
And I'm like, it sounds like it's supposed to sound. This is progress. It was hope. You know, and it was, um, it was the payoff for, you know, struggling through, right? Yeah. It was, ha- it was happening. So, you know, that faith in a good ending, it started to happen. You know, I was, I was getting there. And that's how, that's how we endure, right? Mm-hmm. We just put another step in front of the other and we keep moving forward. Aaron, by the way, I thought you were pulling my leg when you said start a chocolate company. And here you are making chocolate for people for money. <laughs> mm, yeah. And then we turned the ch- uh, chocolate money into real estate money. So I tell people I, I sell fudge to buy rentals. <laughs> hey, if it works, it works, right? But mm-hmm, yeah. how, how cool to have that come back in that way. And so now you you aren't just connect disconnected from the outside world, except through touch. You're able to now hear the sound of your kids, even though it's not perfect and it's not exactly like, you know, people without your situation hear things, but it's something, Nothing right? Nothing like the real thing. Right. Nothing it's, like the real thing, but way better than the alternative. Oh, for sure. When did Badwater come on your radar, Aaron? Mm, you know what? Um, I can't tell you exactly when, but you know, uh, <laughs> I hear about blind guys kayaking. I'm like, I'm going to do that. And I hear about blind guys climbing mountains. I'm like, I'm going to do that. Right. And then I think it was on, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know where I first learned of it. But I heard about these people that were running 135 miles across Death Valley to you know, Mount Whitney and yeah. up Mount Whitney. I'm like, that is crazy. I'm going to do that. But, you know, um, I was still, I had only run a handful of marathons. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, it was, it came to that decision point. I think I, after, after the Akron marathon, I'd actually qualified for Boston again. And it was, you know, I ran that again. And it was that decision point. Should I go faster or longer? Right. And I thought, man, why not go longer? Yeah. Uh, I started doing, you know, ultra marathons. I did a 12 hour was my first yeah, you know, yeah, first four and ultra. And and the the goal was to eventually one day, which I hate saying, like someday, one day, because that yeah. never happens. Right. Right. Someday is the same as never. But I also knew that I had to qualify. I needed to I didn't run my bones in the in the world uh, of ultra. So um I uh, started doing, I just went straight to 100, you know, 100 miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I registered for the Keys 100, and then COVID happened. Yeah. So I couldn't do that. But uh, I ran the Canal Corridor 100, and then did that one again. I ran uh, GVRAT, you know, the... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the great virtual race across Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh, and I was I did I, I was actually doing the down and back, uh, and, and I did that in conjunction with the, my first uh, canal corridor, mm-hmm. and I got like a stress fracture stress fracture on that one, and I was laid up for a little while, but 
then you know came you know did the second canal corridor and i was gonna go and do the keys 100 because i knew that was one of those one that would get me on the radar yeah for bad water but uh bob you know he's a terrific bob becker he's a terrific dude um i've met him now a few times and he's a really great guy he's also one of the students of my coach uh, Lisa Smith Batchen, and he's the race director for Keys 100. Mm-hmm. And uh, this time he said, No, it's not safe enough for you as a blind runner. I was disappointed. Yeah. But as an alternative, he also is now the race director for the Daytona 100. So I ran that one. And it just so happens that uh, Chris Gossman, the race director for Badwater, was there at Daytona. Um, he actually already heard of me, and somebody had already bought him one you know, pound of my fudge. So, <laughs> um, thank you, friend. And, uh, so I was I made it onto the radar. And you know, then and I'd actually completed as the qual you know qualify my qualifying three you know hundred milers, and you know Daytona was a hot one, and that twelve hour was a hot one, and I trained in my Florida garage on the treadmill, you know, often with a really heavy weight vest in a serious incline, and you know, the devil's jock strap uh, of, a, of a garage. And I prepared for bad water that way. Besides, you know, getting out with friends and, you know, guided me on the road. Uh, I really suffered and it paid off because uh, uh, I needed all of that training and all that preparation. Yeah. I got to bad water. You became the first blind and deaf athlete to finish bad water um and i can imagine because florida you got that humid heat you go out there in death valley it's an entirely different heat sensation do you think the humidity and florida heat prepared you for the death valley heat or do the two things not compare i was like cheating yeah yeah you know how everybody's like but it's a dry heat i was cracking up uh yeah the humidity is so miserable yeah it's i i hate humidity i don't know how i ended up in florida uh, i grew up in ohio <laughs> right, right. but you know i'm i'm kind of like that like a like viking i don't like the heat i never complain about being cold because i live in florida right right you know um and i don't i don't there's like eight months out of the year i don't want to go outside uh, but uh, instead of complaining about the humidity, I used it to my advantage in that, that garage with the doors closed and that sun radiating through oh. the, the oh. tin door and that humidity. And I've got, I've got a box fan, an oscillating fan, and one of those wall air conditioning units I installed in the garage because mm-hmm. I, turned, I turned my garage into a pretty decent home gym. Yeah. But they just collect dust. I haven't turned any of them on in like years. Because uh, I wanted it to be hard. When I got to the desert, when I got to Death Valley, 
And that hot, dry heat, it actually reminded me of Afghanistan. I'm like, I've suffered through to this before. And it's a dry heat. It's not like the humidity. I was, I was like tickled pink. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. And everyone's like, man, it's hot. I'm like, meh. Yeah, not really. <laughs> You've and not seen just, heat. You see my garage. It wasn't, it wasn't, and to me, it wasn't nearly as uncomfortable as what I'd already been through. And all, all my crew had to do was make sure I got enough salt and water and calories. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll handle uh, the, the, the heat I handled. That, that was like, I was, uh, that, that was not one of my issues on that race was, was the heat. And especially also, um, one of my crew members uh, was uh, Vincent Antunes, the, you know, Mr. Trail Toes himself. Uh, and he has this new invention called the ice kerchief. And you know how, you know, people roll up ice yeah. cubes. Well, he's got this huge thing um, that you could roll up like a couple, like a one or two pounds of ice and wrap it around your neck and it goes down over your chest. So it gets all the major like arteries. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and that thing, it was, it's like, like literally because of my crew and my Florida preparation, all that, I think I had an un- unfair advantage. Wow. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, like the knowledge base there, the trail toes, the ice kerchief, the preparation. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't have been better set uh, for the challenge. I just had to you know, face it. And I had to go, I had to go meet my demons. You know, a lot of people will use sight to zone out. You'll look at the mountains off in the distance or they'll listen to music or podcasts to take them away from the reality that they're facing right now. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. You have no place to go in your suffering at all. You can't hide from my head the entire time. Yeah. And even before the race, you know, and you do that, you know, pre-race uh, crew phone call and everybody's like, here's the plan. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just, I was talking about, man, that's a long, that's a long time, you know, 48 hours. I don't know if I'm going to keep my, be able to keep my phone, like, because of my phone, I can Bluetooth to my, my Cochlear. I can listen to podcasts if I want to. I'm, yeah. like, I'm not going to keep that thing charged. Like, you don't want to do that. And are you going to need I, you're going to have to you're going to need to be able to hear us and you know there's only one input so i'm either listening to my crew or a podcast or something yeah so i can't do that but oh i guess you're all going to have to hear my stories over and over again to like uh am i in, in lisa uh she's like no you're probably not going to want to talk too much it's just too much energy you need that for the you know the heat and the the race like talking it, i don't you you obviously don't know me i mean i've got plenty of energy for talking there wasn't a whole, a whole lot of talking either um but yeah yeah it was it was just me in my head most of the time how do you deal with the suffering then where do you, where do you go aaron or how do you get through the suffering when you've got no place to hide from it. You know, your mind just bounces. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you think of 
your family. Sometimes you think of work. Sometimes you think of the random thing from who, where the hell did that come from? Uh, and then every few minutes, it comes back to your pace, fuel consumption, time, you know, just in your rhythm. And um, I really was paying attention quite a bit to my, my guide and how I was being guided because <clears throat> I didn't even mention this, but you know, how a blind runner even runs on a road is with a guide. Yeah. And for the last nine or so years since my first marathon, I've been running side by side with a, a little nylon. Well, actually, I started started with a it's a tether, but I started with a a dog tug of war rope. You know, yeah, fat, fat rope with a knot. I hold one knot, the, the my guide holds the other knot, and I just get all my cues from wherever that rope goes. And essentially, my my guide and I never really even have to speak unless I don't know. There's like a curve or a speed bump or open manhole cover or something. Yeah, they better better speak up. Um, but uh, when we get we we got to death valley a little you know a few days early and instantly realized that we couldn't do the side-by-side -side thing it's single track the whole way right because you can't you got to run from that it's it's paved the whole way but you have to stay from on the left hand side of the road of course and you got to be from that white lane to the edge it's about a foot and a half you can't go side by side or some like my guide is going to have to run in the dirt and soft gravel, loose scree. And um, also over the last decade of running side by side, I've had to keep one arm like a 90 degree angle yeah. pretty much. And it never figured out how to do the arm swing thing. And I've developed these knots. I favored my left side because of the ear. Yeah. And I just developed this knots and neck pain and shoulder pain. And that was one of my biggest fears. Really, my big one of my biggest fears uh, going into bad water was upper body pain that I would be bringing with me and would be really excruciating over, you know, the course of um, possibly 48 hours or right. longer. Um, but uh when we found out that we couldn't do that, we had to come up with something really quick. And uh, thank goodness I brought those trekking poles with me. So uh, after some testing and some modifications, we figured out that well, I could take you know, the handles, I'd lift up the handles, put, put give my guide the uh, tips of the poles, and we taped the tips of the poles to the the pacer's belt. Okay. And and they would the tips would basically be on a hip of the guide in front of me. And I just followed the the poles. And what actually the, the coolest side effect of this is that because it was right on the, the runner's uh, hips, the poles were like sideways, like horizontal uh, pistons. And I could actually, in rhythm with my guide, uh, have a natural arm swing. Wow. Yeah. So no pain, no shoulder pain. It didn't aggravate me at all the entire way. Um, and we figured out how to run 
directly behind my guides instead of side by side. Because uh, before, with that short little tether, I now use like a little piece of nylon strap, like a backpack strap. Yeah. It's got a loop on either end where I can fit about three fingers. And my guide hat holds one. I got a loop on my hand. And we switch back and forth from side to side every couple miles or so. It's still, the shoulder still bothers me. But if we have to go single file, he takes that thing and puts it around his back like he's trying to hide me. And we go single file that way. But can you imagine my guide with his arm all the way behind him? And yeah. my my arm straight out in front of me, and I'm still like tripping on heels. Right. So that would have been like I I knew from the outset there's no way we could go single file using that method. So the trekking poles were a godsend. And then somebody in the group was like, "You're never going to be able to hear us and talk about like we're walking, we're running. We got to stop." We're, if we're running in front of you and you can't hear, there's going to be wind traffic and, and they can't like yell over their shoulder. The whole, and see, so what they, we did, we got a, a whistle. One blast for walk, two for run, three tweets for stop. And uh, every mile, and, every couple of miles, like every mile and a half or so, uh, we meet the, the crew truck. Yeah. And then every few miles, like three to five miles, we change out guides. And I have my three crew members uh, changing out uh, intermittently. And, and, and uh, Vincent was a driver watching all of our nutrition, t- t- tending to feet and that kind of thing. And um, that's, how, that's how we did it. That's how I managed to get through the course. Did you just invent a new way for blind runners to experience a race in a better situation where you're not forced to hold one arm down? You can actually do full arm swings now. I mean, are, have you thought of developing, like taking that that hodgepodge idea you threw together with the trekking poles on the hips and working on something for, for blind runners that, that uses that kind of technology? I have no idea if, if I... It was new to me. I don't know if I'm the yeah. first one. Um, I there's the there's a friend of mine, Richard Hunter. He's a uh, marine. He's actually a pretty big marine for a runner. Yeah. Uh, but he's a fast. He's a fast dude too. But uh, um, he's. I was texting him like the day before, two days before. Like, here's what I got. What do I do? And we talked about it through. I got trekking poles. I was thinking about giving my guide one of the poles to the pole, something like that. But no, they can't hold on to the poles because then they're holding. They can't. My guide wouldn't be able to drink or eat. Right, right. And um, so kind of talked it through. And I think he said something like he's heard somebody else using something similar. So I can't. I can't. I'm not yeah. sure if I'm the first one to come up with it. I had considered trying to find like a prototype manufacturer to do some lightweight collapsible thing yeah. that might might work. Hey, if it works, it obviously worked for you. Aaron, finishing bad water, crossing that finish line with all the obstacles you had to overcome. There was so much more, it seems 
riding on like there, there's so much that rides on everybody's bad water finish right people will carry their own weight with them they'll carry their own personal demons their own self-doubt their own got to prove it to somebody think about ashley paulson who won the race she was carrying the fact that everyone thought she cheated the year before and she had to prove it to everybody that she actually you know could win the race you carried a lot more than that you carried i'm sure your moments of self-doubt but you also were carrying the hopes of athletes in your situation people that have thought maybe that the sport could not be for them that they could not do bad water if you're blind and you're deaf can you do these incredible things what was the finish line like with all of that weight you were carrying or were you not am i just assuming you were carrying the weight of everybody what was it like i can tell you my next big invention is going to be a chairlift to get me up that last 15 miles I don't know if anybody's come up with something like that, but it's like a like a bench yeah. just hangs from hangs from like a, a wire that just pulls you up the mountain. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Seriously. So uh, here's here's the way I I imagine things. Here's how the, my perspective on things. The um, EOD team. You know, in the army, we usually go in three-member teams, right? Mm-hmm. Team leader and two team members, and we get this big shipping container full of tools. I use this analogy all the time. Uh, everything, like I said, nuclear weapons, chemical, bio- biological rockets, uh, uh, landmines, grenades, bullets—you name it—we've got tools for it, enough to fill, like practically fill a shipping container. Robots, bomb suits, and then we get out to the battlefield and get this armored truck. Now we can't fit all the tools and we got to leave some of the tools behind. We do a bit of a triage and we try to figure out what tools we'll most likely need, but it doesn't give us an excuse if we don't have the right tool not to perform the mission. Right. Right. You know, we're going to come up with some kind of piece of ordinance or some IED and we have to handle it. We have the tools in the truck and that's what we have to do the job, but the mission has to go on. And then we get to Afghanistan and it's dismounted we're on foot patrol because there's no just no roads it's all goat trails and packed down dirt and no vehicles can get in there so we're walking and i gotta carry whatever tools i think i'm gonna need or you know along with my my water and food and extra socks and all ammunition on my back it comes down to that shipping container down to a couple blocks of c4 some rope a grappling hook, you know, a knife. Yeah. It's, it's like, and a whole lot of creativity. <clears throat> I can't worry about the tools I left behind. They're gone. Mm-hmm. I still got a mission. And so here I am. I've left a couple of tools behind. And I still got a mission. And I've got my creativity. I've got my imagination. I've got my my core values, my education and training. I've got an awesome team. And, you know, the sum, you know, you know, sum is greater than its parts, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and that was really, my team practically pulled me up, virtually, you know, figuratively pulled me up that mountain because they just, they said, you're going this, this pace and I'm going with you. 
So I matched their their pace, and it and it sucked. I mean, the Mount Whitney, that last thirteen miles alone is the hardest half marathon in the world because it's just up a mountain. Yeah, and uh, man, after all of that, the the hot desert, you know, three mountain climbs, yeah. Uh, Town Pass, Father Crawley, if I ever meet that dude, uh, <laughs> we have words. Um, and then Mount Whitney. And we got all of that. And I, I broke down on Father Crawley. It got to the point where I was terrified. That was the one, that was the one, that was, that was the point. That's where, that's where I reached that point that I'd come there for was Father Crowley. And I, you know, that's, you know, my balance is bad. We get our balance three different ways. Vestibular balance, that inner ear balance, which is gone. Yeah. Um, eyesight, you know, seeing our world in relation to ourselves uh, or ourselves in relation to the world, that's gone. So I'm down two out of three because the third way is through touch. You know, your nerves and your muscles in contact with the earth. So the more fatigued I get, the less balance I have. And you better believe, Father Crowley, you're pretty fatigued. So even though I can will my legs to go forward, I can't tell them where they land. Yeah. And remember, I've got this narrow strip um, between the, the white line and the dirt. And on those switchbacks, there's a, even a tilt to the road as the road does like that racetrack thing. And it was just pulling me across that white line and it was freaking me out. And I was tired, I was hot, you know, miserable, uh, blistering. And there are, and I'm coming really close to bumpers. Yeah. Uh, so I, it took my team to make me realize that, you know, I put my trust in them, not just to make sure um, I had the right nutrition, but that I got there safely. They had my safety in their hands, and I had to be reminded of that, just like my team on the battlefield. So we, got, we went move forward, and we got through it. and. That was that was the real crucible. The rest of it was kind of miserable. It was tough. Uh, we ran up that mountain and we just kept going, and we got across that finish line. And it was like, wait, we're done. Yeah, I mean, this is. I was I was definitely exhausted, but it, it was almost. I don't know. It, it took forever, and it went too fast. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. No. Uh, it was almost a surprise uh, because I am really bad at the ultra arithmetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how much further? Stop asking. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, it's seven more miles. You said five miles uh, two miles ago. Right. How did we add? Uh, so, you know, that happened to me on the mountain. Right. One guy, one of the crew said seven miles. You're saying five miles or the vice versa. Right. He said five miles. You're saying seven miles. And, and 
you're you quit messing with my head. It's not us, dude. And then I just, I took the long number and I was pleasantly surprised when I got to the top. But it was, it was amazing because I, I heard that uh, intermittent faint applause, a clapter, yeah. like a little cheering. Yep. Like, did I hear that? And then I heard it a little bit closer. And then all of a sudden, boom, we're there. Yeah. And there's Chris Kostman shaking my hand, walking me, you know, people clapping, hugging. Um, it was an amazing experience. It was really, really incredible. Such an incredible story, Aaron. Thank you for coming on the Adventure Jogger and sharing so much. Lessons, humor, determination. This has been a heck of a chat, and I thank you so much for this, Aaron. This has been a gift. Thank you. You're very welcome. And you just reminded me, uh, you know, I, I can't read the marathon you know, signs, but my guides often read them to me. Yeah. And one of them was really funny. It said, run like somebody called you a jogger. <laughs> Aaron, before we go and hang things up, we can't leave. You see, you had that great line about running like a jogger, but we can't leave. You have a podcast that everybody needs to listen to, and I'm going to link to it in the description of the podcast. Aaron, what is your podcast? Well, I have a podcast because I'm too lazy to write the book. Uh, but um, <laughs> uh, I, I really wanted to learn how to live my best life and, and contribute. So I started a podcast. It was based all around that. It's called Point of Impact. And it's all about becoming the, your best self, leveling up so that you can in turn be a contribution to society you know make that impact a legacy you want in your world so it's point of impact with aaron hale all right check it out everybody listen to point of impact with aaron hale put it in your rotation